The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. Let me invite you to take your copy of God's Word and open with me to the book of Colossians. Uh, Colossians chapter 1. You can find that on page 983 of a Bible in the rack. If you need one or whatever Bible you have, let's open together to Colossians chapter 1. Uh, we have been studying now the book of Colossians in chapter 1 for several weeks now, and, and we're moving towards the end of the, the opening introduction that Paul makes. I want to remind you that Paul is writing this letter to this particular congregation at Colossae, and this congregation would have received the letter and had it read to them uh, by a man named Epaphras. And Tychicus, they delivered this, and they would have read it together. They would have been hearing Paul's words, writing to them. And so one of the really unique things, actually, about sitting in a church congregation and hearing the Scriptures read is that you are actually embodying the exact same experience that the congregation at Colossae had when they received the letter and they sat and heard it being read. And as we sit and hear the letter to the church at Colossae, we also understand it to be a Holy Spirit-inspired Word of God. So about that, this is what I want to say to you in the big picture this morning, is that the gospel, the gospel is God's story of redemption and God's story of salvation. It gives us the big picture for all things so that we can make sense of our lives in the midst of the big picture and the big story. God's gospel is the story for your life and mine. And it tells us why we exist, where we came from, where life is headed, and what it all means. And the gospel gives us the answer to all of those questions. And we should acknowledge the fact that other people have other stories. Other people may have other explanations for those big questions in life. Where do I come from? What does life mean? Where is it all headed? What's it all about? There are other stories that give other answers to those questions, but the gospel is God's story and the answer to all of those questions and the story that we need to know. And Paul is writing to the Colossian Christians because they are often tempted to believe some other story or some other answer to the meaning and purpose and direction of their life. And Paul is writing to the Colossian Christians to say the gospel is sufficient. The gospel is enough for you to come into the Christian faith and continue in the Christian faith. The gospel is enough. So that's the big picture of the text this morning. Let's pray and ask God's blessing on the word and we will hear it together. Heavenly Father, we bow now with the Scriptures open before us, thankful that we have a Bible that we can read and understand in our own language. Mindful, Lord, that there are still peoples and tribes and nations of the world that don't have a Bible in a language that they can understand. So how fortunate we are, Father, to have the Scriptures. And we pray that with this attitude of thankfulness and gratitude that we would come before the Bible now to hear you speak to us your living word that as you recorded it through Paul by your Holy Spirit that that same spirit might rest upon our hearts that we might read mark learn and inwardly receive the truth that you give to us here come now Lord to bless your word to your people we ask in Jesus name amen 
And now hear the Word of God. Colossians 1, at verse 21 through verse 23. This is the Word of God. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He has now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of God abides forever. So may He write its truth on our hearts today. The wonderful thing about this text is that it grabs you right from the beginning. Everybody always wants to know how the Bible applies to them or what difference it makes for them. People are always interested in application and that's good and right and a wonderful thing. Well, this text is all application. I want you to look again at verse 21 and you should ask yourself the question, the question that the Colossians were likely asking, where do we fit into all of this? Paul has been talking about the glory of Christ and the wonder of Christ and the Colossians are thinking, yes, we believe that and and what does it mean for us? We should ask ourselves that same question today. Where do we fit into this great gospel story? The Colossians were asking that. I want you and I to ask the question of the text today. Where do we fit into all of this grand story of God's redemption? Where do we come into this? Paul says, verse 21, and you... To do just that, to turn our attention to application and answering the question, where do we fit in to all of this? Now, that's a, it's an important thing to do what Paul has done rather than another option. Because there's two ways to look at the Christian faith through this way. Uh, if we begin with ourselves and then ask the question, who is Jesus relative to who I am? Then we will constantly be trying to fit and package Jesus into appropriately sized containers to be appropriately fitting for us, acceptable, digestible, receivable by us. If we start with ourselves and then move to Jesus, then Jesus becomes a subject to me. Jesus becomes subject to my meaning and value and purpose. But notice what Paul has done here in this text. Just preceding, he has been speaking about the wonderful, exalted, preeminent Christ who is Lord over all things, and then he moves to you. See that? He starts with Jesus, and then he says, let's talk about ourselves. Which is the opposite of beginning with me and then moving to Jesus. He starts with Christ and then asks, how does the truth of Christ inform who I am and inform the way I look at the world and inform my value and purpose and where everything is heading. We begin with Christ and then our understanding of ourselves is shaped rather than the reverse. If we begin with ourselves and then move to Jesus, Jesus becomes subject to us. But if we begin with Christ and then understand ourselves in relationship to Him, we appropriately see ourselves as subject to Him, the Lord of all creation. So, Paul is answering the question, 
What does this gospel do for me? What does this gospel mean for me? How does this exalted, preeminent, sovereign Christ impact my life? And again, he says, verse 21, and you, he's going to tell us that very thing. And when he says you, he's of course writing to these first century Colossian Christians, but it's just as appropriate to understand this to be all Christian believers who truly receive Jesus as he has offered to them in the gospel. This is the difference that he makes. This is the change that he affects. This is the revolution that he brings into our lives. And you, and then Paul is going to speak about three things. He's going to speak about the past, the present, and you can guess the future. Paul says, here is Jesus Christ, and you have been affected by Jesus Christ by receiving him. It has changed your past, your present, your future. And the three key words to see here in the text are going to be, with respect to our past, he's going to use the word alienated. With respect to the present, he's going to use the word reconciled. And with respect to the future, he's going to speak about unshifting. Past, present, future. Alienated, reconciled, unshifting. Understanding your life in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, before we dive into the text in detail, let me just say to you, you know, as your pastor and fellow pilgrim Christian with you, you and I just need to know the gospel. We need to know it. And it's not sufficient to say, oh yeah, I know that, and then think that you're going to move on and do something else as if the Christian life ever moves beyond the gospel. You and I, as Christian disciples, must know the gospel, believe the gospel, and repeat. Know the gospel and believe the gospel. Know the gospel, believe the gospel every day. So that's why Paul is applying the gospel here by saying, let me tell you how you should think about your life, your past, present, and future, according to how the gospel has shaped you. So first of all, your past. Your past. Paul is here providing a diagnosis of our former condition before receiving the message of the gospel. Look at it again in verse 21. And you, he writes, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Now, we, we, should, we should stop and think about the way Paul is explaining this because it may be the case that you are not necessarily conscious that this was your former state, spiritually speaking. But just like medical pathology can reveal a deadly disease in the life of someone who feels fine, so the gospel is able to reveal to us our spiritual condition, even if we, you know, with shoulder shrugs say, I think I'm all set, I think I'm fine, I think everything's okay. But the gospel tells us, actually, that apart from Jesus Christ, before coming to faith in Jesus Christ, before being a Christian, this is the estate of my life, spiritually speaking. The Apostle Paul is describing the spiritual state of the person who is outside of Christ. So, just very clearly, what Paul is doing is he is saying, this is true of every single human being that has ever existed. It is either true of them presently as they persist in unbelief, or is it a description of who they once were before coming to faith in Jesus? But Paul is describing a past. 
And to these Christian believers, he is writing to them in the past tense as the Apostle Paul is describing the second of these two options. Essentially saying, this is who you were. You're not this anymore, but you need to know who you once were. And notice how he describes it. He says, you were alienated. And you who were once alienated. It can also be uh, translated as estranged. Or a longer way of saying it is you didn't fit in. Now, usually when we think of alienated or estranged, perhaps we associate it with the, the pains of having an alienated or estranged family member. And if your family has ever experienced the pains of alienation within your biological family, then, then you are just beginning to touch the pains associated with being alienated from your maker. This is not social alienation that Paul is talking about, but it is spiritual alienation estranged from our maker. There is no deeper alienation than this. That is to say, human beings were made for communion with God, but by our sin, that communion is broken and we do not have fellowship with God. We are estranged from our Maker and from our God. We are with Adam, cast out east of the way of the Garden of Eden, away from God. We are not with Him spiritually. And Paul says, sinners are by nature alienated from God. They are also hostile Again, he says, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind. So where alienation is describing the external realities of our fellowship spiritually, hostility is here reflecting the inward realities of the fact that we are at hostility with God by our mind and by our thoughts, by our attitudes and intentions. We are alienated externally and we are alienated internally by the hostility of our minds. It's describing the person who rejects being a dependent creation and instead exalts themselves saying, I am independent. I am self-sufficient. I am hostile to my maker by saying, I am my own maker. I am self-existent, self-sufficient within myself. And what this boils down to, the idea of alienation and hostility of mind, is the fact that by nature, you and I don't want to be ruled. You and I don't want someone, really anyone, telling us what to do. We don't like it. Paul says, by nature we are hostile of mind. We relish our own authority. We relish our own sufficiency. We are tempted to think that people who don't believe in Christ are apathetic and we're tempted to think that they just really don't care when the Apostle Paul actually says, no, they do care and they are intentionally hostile to the God who has made them. Or in other places in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul describes the unbeliever as someone who is a, this is a very direct word, an enemy of God because they set themselves up as hostile. Alienated, hostile in mind, and, he says, doing evil deeds. This is an emphasis on wicked, emphasis of idolatry and immorality where alienation and hostility expresses itself in the specific deeds of darkness. And so you came to church on this beautiful morning to hear this terrible diagnosis, didn't you? But we must hear it. We must hear it. Nobody 
Nobody relishes the phone call from the physician to say, worst case scenario is the reality. But that's what this is. We want the physician to tell us the truth because we can't live in ignorance of a bad diagnosis. Now, here's how we should think about this. For some people, for some individuals, for some Christian believers, uh, they are able to remember their life before believing and trusting in Jesus. And the description that Paul gives here, alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, they can think back and have memories of their life where that is an absolute perfect description of their spiritual state before coming to faith in Christ. For other people, whether by the grace of covenant nurture or just the sheer mercy of God, you can't necessarily look back in your life and think about a time when this absolutely described you because you've always grown up under the nurture of believing in Jesus. And I want to say very clearly that both of those things are good. Both of those stories are true and faithful. So whether you are a person that has specifically known a history of alienation from God and then come to faith in Christ, or you are a person who by covenant nurture has never really known a day where you've been living in abject rebellion from your God, both of those stories are good and true and right. And very specifically, let me just say, the second option of not knowing a day of rebellion, I want you to know that that's what I pray for my kids and for your kids. When they come to this table, I literally pray for every single one of them that they would never know a day when they don't love the name of Jesus. Because I don't want them growing up thinking that God is hostile to them, that God is against them, but rather through Christ in the gospel, He is for them. And I want our children to grow up with that. So covenant nurture is a good thing, but I want to say very clearly that both stories are good and right and faithful. No story is better than the other. No one is more preferred necessarily because it all ends up in the grace of salvation. But if, Lord willing, hear my prayers, don't let our children grow up in hostility of mind and abject rebellion. Help them to walk in the truth all the days of their life. So, the point that Paul writes about this here is so that these Colossian Christians would understand that apart from Jesus Christ, this is our estate. Apart from saving faith in Christ, we are alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. And the point that he wants these Christians to understand is, do you see what life is outside of Christ? Using the past tense then to move on and say, that's not who you are anymore. That's not true of you anymore. That's not your story anymore. You are moving into the present, now reconciled. Again, see it in verse 21. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Verse 22, he has now reconciled. This marvelous good news Paul is pouring out here in verse 22 and following that for alienated guilty sinners like you and like me who by nature are God's enemies have been brought into restoration, reconciliation. Paul has reminded them of who they were so that they can see who they are now by the grace of God, who God has made them to be and what God has done for them. Notice the emphasis again in verse 22 that this is what He has done. In verse 21, this is who you were. 
but he has now reconciled you, he says, continuing on, in his body of flesh by his death. Let's just, let's just camp out on this for a moment, shall we? Because there is something about us as human beings that by our nature, when we hear the difficult diagnosis of our spiritual condition, our instinct is to say, okay, well, let's fix that. If we're alienated, if we're hostile, if we're doing evil deeds, let's stop. Let's change. How do I fix it? Tell me what to do. Thanks for the bad news, Paul. Tell me what I have to do to get back on the right path. Give me the regimen. Give me the words to say. Give me the right things to do. Give me the right order of operations. Tell me what to do. But do you notice what the bad news is still? The bad news is, is that there is nothing for you to do. You can't do it. The bad news is that we are absolutely alienated and there is nothing we can do about it. So, Paul says, the good news is that he's done it all for you. The bad news is really bad and there's nothing we can do about it and the good news is so good because your helpless condition is absolutely met by God in His grace in Jesus Christ who has, again to use Paul's language, reconciled. You can't remedy your condition, but He has acted. He has provided the remedy in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. You were enemies and now you are the children of God by grace adopted into His family. Not just friends, but you are members in the household of faith. Paul says God is the one who has reconciled you. And furthermore, he says it with this very interesting phrase in verse 22, that it was affected that this reconciliation is accomplished. See it again in the text, verse 22. In his body of flesh by his death. And you should read over that and think to yourself, that's kind of an interesting phrase. That's a strange way to say it. Reconciled to you in his body of flesh by his death. Speaking about the death of Christ, of course. Now, what, what Paul probably has in mind here is the fact that the Colossian Christians existed in the first century uh, under some more platonic philosophies that said that the body is evil and the body is a prison for the soul and nothing good can come out of the body. We should cast off the body to set the soul free. And perhaps the Colossian Christians were subject to this kind of teaching. And that would have diminished in their eyes the value of Jesus' body. Because they were told the body's bad. They were told that the body is not real and insubstantial, just a prison. For them, the body is evil. And if Jesus has a body of flesh, well, that would mean that Jesus is evil. But Paul is correcting that. He is explaining that the very way that Christ brings about our reconciliation is through his body as he gives up his body to death and reconciles us. The reason why this is so important here is because in just the preceding verses, in verses 15 and following, he was exalting Christ's deity and the wonderful sovereign preeminence of the God who made everything and holds everything together. And now here Paul is saying that glorified Savior has a body. And in the world that the Colossian Christians occupied, they would not have been able to hold those two things together. How can a preeminent, sovereign, holding all things together God have a fleshly body? But the Christian message is, is that God has taken on flesh and in that flesh reconciled us by His death on the cross. This is very simple. 
isn't it, on the one hand, and yet it's beautifully complex. That by the death of Christ, He has set Himself forward as the innocent man to take the place of the guilty one. Jesus, who is the second person of the Trinity, who never experiences alienation from God, sets Himself forward so that the alienated person might be reconciled. Jesus, the one who is never hostile in mind, sets Himself forward on behalf of the one who has not only actually, but also internally had wicked intentions. And Jesus, the sinless one, goes forward on behalf of the guilty one the holy and blameless one, so that we who are sinners might be forgiven. The exchange of the gospel. And Paul wants these Colossian Christians to understand that in Jesus Christ, you are reconciled because He died so you can live. God has opened the way for you to come back to Him. There is a welcome for everyone through Jesus Christ who is the way, the truth, and the life. And that is to say that the way is open because of Jesus. Here's why this matters before we move on, before we move on beyond this. It's so painfully evident, isn't it, that people are willing to acknowledge that there are problems in the world. In fact, everybody's very willing to offer their commentary and opinions on what the problems are and how they should be fixed. But oftentimes, those who discern that something is wrong knows that it needs to be fixed and don't actually have an answer to actually do it. And what the gospel is, is the answer not only to the question of what is wrong, but how can what is wrong be made right and have it actually work, not just make an attempt. Ask somebody what they think about what's wrong with the world and what needs fixing and how it can be fixed and if it'll work. And listen to the opinions come flying out. In the gospel, God says, here's what's really wrong and here's how it can be made right. And God says, I have done it. And the reason why Paul is saying this here, still at the beginning of his letter, is because he wants these Christians to believe it and believe it with a great confidence. They already know that it's true, but he wants them to drill down and put some anchors in the foundation to say, your faith is founded on a sure footing. You might know it, and you might know it a little bit more than you used to, but you need to know it, know it even more deeply. And here's the point that's still very relevant for us. There is a temptation for you and I to want to move on. There is a temptation for you listening to me to say, uh-huh, I know that already. Tell me something I don't know. Do you, do you ever feel that temptation? Loved ones, sometimes I feel that temptation in what I'm saying. I think to myself, oh, they've heard this already. And you might say, oh, I've heard this already. And Paul says, yes. That's the point. There's a great story about Martin Luther, first generation Protestant reformer. And somebody met him at the back of the church, as congregation members often meet their pastor at the back of the church. And they said to Martin Luther, Martin, again with the same story, again with the same message. It's always the gospel, the gospel, the gospel. Surely there's got to be something else for you to talk about. And Martin Luther, in common cheekiness, says to him, well, 
Have you believed it perfectly this week? Did you obey it perfectly this week? Have you trusted Christ perfectly this week? No, me neither. So, dear friend, you'll hear it from me again next week. And as Christians, that's just something that we have to build into ourselves. Now, that's maybe a helpful illustration from church history, or maybe this is also a helpful illustration. It might land with you. Do you know that left tackles get paid $23 million in the NFL to take three steps? Left tackles who have been spending their entire athletic career learning to power step, kick back, and pass block, and they drill three steps again and again and again and again, and they get paid $23 million to take three steps and block the blind side of their right-handed quarterback. Three steps. And they work those three steps again and again and again and again. They get paid $23 million to do so, but there's a monotony associated with it. Again, the same thing, kickback, kickback, kickback. Now listen, Christian believer. Far better than earthly riches is the eternal riches of Jesus Christ. And if you are worn out on the same steps, then you're missing the riches of God in Christ. So here's what Paul says. Here's who you were. Here's what is true of you now. Where's it all headed? Continuing on in... uh, Scriptures, verse 21 again, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He has now reconciled in the body of flesh by His death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him, if indeed you continue in the faith stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the Gospel that you heard. The Colossian believers were under pressure in their time and in their context, to be led astray from the Gospel. And Paul is writing this letter to help them stay the course, hold the line, stand firm in the faith. He wants them to be secure and stable. To use the imagery from Psalm 1 like a tree that's planted by water whose roots go down deep to stabilize and feed the tree so that in varied seasons it still bears fruit. Or to be, as a Christian believer, like a ship at anchor in a safe harbor that's not pulled out to the ocean every time the tides change, but that stays secure and steadfast, that's stable. Paul says, Christian believer, you are under assault to be unstabilized, to be sucked out to sea, to be toppled over by all manner of forces in the world. But if you stay with Christ, if you continue to believe the Gospel, you will have this unshifting hope that you will remain stable and steadfast. So let me ask you this question. What most tempts you away from believing the Gospel? What most tempts you away from trusting in Christ today? You may have known His faithfulness in previous seasons, but what is it that is tempting you today to shift? To not continue on with steadfast hope? Paul says we must press on because that's where he is. He says, I am a minister of this Gospel. It came to me. It goes from me. It came to you, Colossian believers. It should go from you. People of Edgington, the gospel has come to you. It should go from you as ministers of the gospel believing in it because the saving gospel is the stabilizing gospel. You don't move on from it. You don't graduate to a higher level of Christian teaching. 
you just drill down more deeply in the infinite truth of God's grace in Jesus Christ. No matter how far you go in the Christian faith, no matter how much you progress, no how much knowledge you increase, you're never going to move beyond this infinite depth of wonder of the provision there is for you of God in Jesus Christ. So Paul is inviting these Christian believers. He is calling them. He is pleading with them to say, don't move on. Don't be carried away by this wind of fancy or that. Don't be led astray into thinking that acceptance in the eyes of the culture is the most prized possession. It is acceptance before God and Christ that you must value most. Not the opinions of other people. Not the opinions of cultural commentators. It is God's opinion of you in Christ that matters. So, he is saying, this is our story. This is the way we make sense of the world. And he is inviting these Christian believers in Colossae and by grace, you and I, to say that this is our story, that we should remind ourselves of it and tell it to our children and tell it to our grandchildren and believe it with all of our hearts, even when life is hard and even when life is a struggle, to believe with all of our hearts that we have been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, to be convinced that the saving gospel is the stabilizing gospel, and so that you will say... Tell me again the old story of Jesus and His love. Tell me again that there's a Savior who loves me who's died for me. Tell me again that I'm accepted in Christ. Tell me again that there is more mercy in Jesus than sin in me. And relish in the delight of hearing the Gospel proclaimed to you. Loved ones, let that be true of us as it was true of the saints in Colossae. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We thank You for the Word of God that has come to us. and We pray that we would take great delight in the Gospel faith of Jesus Christ. Lord, in all the ways that we may be tempted, in all the ways that we may be allured to chase after this worldview or that one in hopes of gaining favor with the eyes of the world, bring us back to You, Lord, safe and steadfast that we may continue in the faith and one day receive the unfading crown of glory. Bless us and our families, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit edgingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.